and thank you for uh, the invitation to worship first and foremost with you today uh, and also to preach God's word. I'd ask you to turn with me please to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. We're not told who wrote this psalm, but we do know beyond a shadow of a doubt that whoever the psalmist was, that when he began to write it, he was in great distress. He was overwhelmed with fear. He was filled with anxiety. He was panic-stricken. How do I know that? Because in verse 1, he graphically describes himself as being, look, in the depths. He's cried out of the depths, which means he began in the depths. And the depths there, uh, we're dealing with Hebrew poetry, of course, in the Psalms, the depths there would be the depths of the sea. And one writer says the picture is that of a person drowning and being unable to either to stand on the bottom or swim to safety. Now, I can't swim. And I can remember on one occasion uh, when going for swimming lessons from school, uh, I could swim okay with the armbands, and then I had the ridiculous idea I could go without them, and I actually sank to the bottom. Uh, and thanks be to God, one of the other boys in the class jumped down and lifted me up. But there was that awful moment where you think you're going to drown, and it is that panic and anxiety, and that's the feeling the psalmist has as he begins to write this psalm. He's speaking metaphorically, of course, when he speaks of being in deep waters. He was not literally at the bottom of the sea when he began to write. But for the Jews at this time, to be in the depths, the depths of the sea, was another way, an idiomatic way, of saying you were in a very dark place indeed. If you referred to yourself as being in the depths, you meant you had found yourself or you would put yourself in an extremely difficult situation. The consequences for you, if you remained there, would be catastrophic. And so as you consider your predicament, you're in complete turmoil within. You're almost unable to breathe, such as this heightened state of anxiety you're in. You feel, just like you would and just like I did, drowning in the sea for the psalmist, unable either to stand on the bottom or to swim to safety. You could almost say perhaps it's as if the psalmist is in the grip of a panic attack, his heart racing uncontrollably as he puts pen to paper. That's how he feels. The question is, why does he feel like that? He must be facing a problem of gigantic proportions for it to plunge him into this state of mind. What could be the cause of such unfathomable distress? Perhaps he's sick. And people who've been diagnosed with a serious illness, perhaps a terminal illness, often report feelings such as these that the psalmist speaks of when they first hear the news. And you do find in some psalms that the writer is in great distress because of physical infirmity or a disease. Perhaps he's sorrowing. The loss of a loved one can bring us into the depths, can't it? And make us feel like the psalmist did. Perhaps he's suffering persecution. 
at the hands of an enemy. Christians who are being tortured today on account of their faith in Jesus are not supermen. They're ordinary believers like us, which is why they so need our prayers for the strength of the Holy Spirit. And many of them readily admit when the enemy closes in, they don't breeze to it all. They find they can easily take the words of Psalm 130 verse 1 on their lips. They're crying out of the depths. Well, the good news is we don't have to speculate as to the cause of the psalmist's distress, because he declares what's brought him here in verse 3. It's not sickness. It's not sorrow. It's not suffering. It's sin. His sin. The problem he's facing lies within, not without. This man is acutely aware of the fact that he stands guilty before God. He has transgressed against the Lord. He has iniquities aplenty. He has incurred God's righteous wrath. And he realizes if God chooses to treat him as he deserves to be treated, he is sunk. And he asks God a question in verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark, take account of, iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? Lord, if you made me answer for, if you made, if you judged me on the basis of, if you punished me according to every sin I've committed, how could I, how could anyone escape total ruin and absolute destruction at your hand? You see, the psalmist is asking a rhetorical question, isn't he? Because he knows full well what the answer is. Nobody. No one. If God marked iniquities, no man, no woman, no child could stand. No one could avoid God's judgment. No one could escape destruction. The psalmist is, in effect, confessing three things, isn't he? Firstly, he's confessing that he himself is a sinner. He's saying, look, Lord, I have failed to give you what you were entitled to from me as my creator. The love of all my heart, all my mind, and all my soul. I am a sinner. I have fallen short. I am a transgressor. I have iniquities. So he recognizes, when I have to stand before God, I can't escape judgment because I can say to him, I have no sins to be judged for. That's not an option. Then secondly, he confesses that I have no excuse I can offer for the sins I've committed, which God will accept. So I have sins. I can't sort of come before you and say, I'm all right because I have no sins. And neither can I come before you, Lord, and say, I have sins, but I have an excuse for them. I couldn't help it. I was trying my best. I did it for a good reason. He acknowledges no argument he might ever hope to bring before God's law to justify his failure to keep it could ever cut the mustard. And then thirdly in verse 3, he's confessing, look, I cannot by my own efforts atone for my iniquities. I have iniquities. 
I have no excuse for them, and I cannot atone for them. I cannot hope to be acquitted before the throne of God on the basis that while I have done many bad things, I've done at least as many, if not more, good things to cancel out the bad things. He simply states, Lord, if you were to look at my sins, if you were to deal with me simply according to them, I have no hope. I can only be condemned and consumed. That's where he finds himself. And the psalmist tells us, of course, that we are no different to him in this respect. As far as this matter of sin and guilt is concerned, we are all in the same position. He, you, me, everyone. On the last day, when sinners stand before the judgment seat of God, or appear before the judgment seat of God, who left to themselves can stand? And in his rhetorical question, the psalmist says, not one person. Because none of us are without sin. None of us can offer an acceptable excuse for our sin. None of us can atone for our sin by our own efforts. Self-help may be the craze of the day, but it just isn't an option when it comes to our sin and God. Do you see where the psalmist finds himself? He says, look, I'm a sinner. I'm deserving of judgment. And this judgment must surely fall upon me unless the situation changes and I can do nothing by myself to change it. I cannot pull myself out of these deep waters in which I'm drowning. Little wonder then that here he is in great distress, overwhelmed with fear, filled with anxiety, panic-stricken. And what we have in verses 1 to 3 is quite simply a man under conviction of sin. He sees his sin. He understands its consequences. He's convulsed by the seriousness of it all. And the reality is, it's God who has put him there. It's God who has shown him his sin. It's God who has convinced him of the consequences of his sin. It's God who has impressed upon him the seriousness of it all. God has cast the psalmist into the depths. God has put him in this dark place. God has, in a sense, or God is, in a sense, the author of this man's distress. But he's not going to leave him there. God has put him there, but he's not going to stay there. This is the first step on a road to redemption. But the psalmist has to go to the depths first. This is where he must begin. Until we see our sin, until we're convinced of the consequences of our sin, until we grasp the seriousness of our sin, we will not look for salvation, and so neither will we find salvation. And God has to first cast us into the depths. And then, once we understand our true plight and condition, as this psalmist did, then and only then, may God lift us onto the rock. But we won't get someone on the rock until they can first see they're at the bottom of the sea. And we won't get on the rock until we've first seen 
that we're at the bottom of the ocean. Our being cast into the depths, our being brought into distress, our being filled with anguish, our being convicted of sin is but a means to an end. It's not a pleasant experience, it's a very painful one, but it's productive and necessary. And it's always the first thing God does with those he is going to save. He wounds us to heal us. He puts us at the bottom of the ocean so he can lift us up onto the dry ground. There's conviction, confession, cleansing. But you don't get anywhere without conviction first. Do you know, if you're a Christian here this morning, what one of the greatest things God ever did for you is? He cast you into the depths of the ocean. He showed you your sin. He convinced you of the implications of it. He showed you the seriousness of it. You wouldn't be where you are today, singing these hymns with the joy you have in your heart. You wouldn't be heading to where you are today without first being put into the death. And do you know what the best thing this church could pray for you today if you're not a Christian? That God will cast you into the death. Not to leave you there, but to take you there so he can take you from there. Charles Wesley, in one of his hymns, speaks about, listen to this, that blessed sense of guilt. What a powerful phrase. That blessed sense of guilt before conversion. We shouldn't be having senses of guilt after, but that blessed sense of guilt and sacred grief. Perhaps that's where you are this morning. Perhaps you had a restless night, a sleepless night, under a sense of guilt. I pray that it's God starting a work of grace in your life. So the psalmist is in distress on account of his sin, but if you're in that place this morning, this is what you need to hear next. He's in distress. But he's not in despair. That's important. Despair is synonymous with hopelessness, isn't it? To be in despair is to feel you are totally without hope. That there is no prospect whatsoever of your situation changing. That this is it. That where you are is where you will always be. That all is lost. Your fate, if you forgive the word, is sealed. That there's no way out. That's the worst place of all to be. And as distressed as the psalmist undoubtedly is, he does feel there is hope. He can be rescued. There is the possibility of light at the end of the tunnel, but he knows it can only be found in God. He knows that God is the only one who can help him here. God is the only one who can pull him out of these deep waters in which he's drowning. The astonishing thing is, the one he has sinned against is the only one who can save him from his sins. And so he calls out to God from the seabed. More than that, he cries out to him. Out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord. And it speaks in the Hebrew of a real piercing scream, a begging, an imploring God for help. Lord, verse 2, hear my voice. 
Lord, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. And the Hebrew conveys the sheer desperation, the urgency, the passion which characterizes this cry. Lord, hear my voice. Lord, don't turn away from me. Because if you do, I'm finished. And the psalmist pins all his hopes in verses 1 and 2 on God. He puts all his eggs in one basket because he knows this is the only basket he can put them in. It is this or nothing. It's God or nothing. If God won't hear him, he's had it. It is that urgent. He desperately needs God. And so in verse 2, we could say he hammers on God's door. He pulls on God's sleeve. He tugs on the hem of God's garment. He wraps his arm around God's feet and he begs him to listen to him. And he refuses to let go because if he lets go, he'll die. God is his only hope, the only way he can be saved from drowning. And what does he ask this God he's begging for? Justice? Mercy. He prays about supplications. Listen to the voice of my supplications, verse 2. Supplications are quite simply pleas for mercy. He knows he doesn't deserve to be spared. He knows he has no right to be spared. He knows he's not entitled to be spared. But still he asks to be spared. He begs for mercy. Pure, sheer, precious mercy. That's all he asks for, because that's all he can ask for. Nothing more, nothing less. He deserves judgment, but he asks for deliverance. His cry is that of the tax collector in Jesus' parable. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all I can bring before you. They're the only words I can take on my lips, is that you would be merciful to me. This is his only chance. His only way out of this situation is for God to show him mercy. And so we have, by the time we come to the end of verse 3, almost a cliffhanger, really. Imagine you were only being, you've never read the psalm before, and you're hearing it read publicly for the first time. And you don't know what's coming. And all you've got to is the end of verse 3. And you're on a cliffhanger, really, because you're thinking, what's going to happen next? Because we know this man recognises where he is, and we know this man is turning to God, and we know this man is asking God for mercy, but what we don't know yet is how is God going to respond? Because everything hinges on God's answer. Everything hinges on whether God will choose to be merciful to him or not. And the psalmist doesn't seem to like to make people wait. Because in verse 4, he tells us God's answer. And it begins with one word, but. And that one small word changes everything for this man. And now for the first time, his head rises above the waters. For the first time, he can breathe. Now he begins his journey from the depths to the heights. We call this a song of ascent because they would have sung it as they were going up to Jerusalem to worship. And in a sense, the structure of the psalm is a down to up. Starting in the depths, finishing in the heights. And now he begins to climb. But, but what? There is forgiveness with you. 
And the psalmist, can you imagine the sheer sense of relief, of ecstasy, of joy? But, but there is forgiveness with you. And the psalmist leaps for joy at the thought that this God who he sinned against, this God who he's offended, this God who has every right to punish him, is a God who is prepared to forgive. And a God who is willing to show mercy. God says to him, in effect, I am prepared to forgive everything. I am willing to show mercy for everything. Verse 7. With the Lord there is mercy. And with him is abundant redemption. That's good news. That is gospel. Others may refuse to forgive us for sins we've committed against them. We may even have a hard time forgiving ourselves for sins we have committed. But with the one who truly matters, with the only one who has the authority to cast us into hell or to unlock the door of heaven, there is forgiveness with God. And the Old Testament, not to mention the New, is full to overflowing with declarations of pardon for sinners, mercy for rebels. Think of how God revealed himself to Moses. I want to know what you're like, God. Let me tell you what I'm like, Moses. I'm merciful and gracious. Not I've been studying mercy and grace for quite a while, and uh, I'm developing quite well in this. I am, by nature, I am at heart, we might say, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. We think of David in the Old Testament and writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. He says, God is slow to anger. He's not a God who rushes to this. He's not a God just waiting to judge. He's not a God relishing the prospect of bringing down his condemnation upon us. He waits. He gives opportunity. He's slow to anger. And he's abounding in mercy. And David says he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. And two of my favorite phrases in the whole of Scripture, Nehemiah, we have these words, God describes himself as ready to forgive. Not, you'll have to work really hard at this, and you'll have to really pull at my hand, and you've got to prize it out of my hand. God is just waiting. God is eager. God is ready to forgive. And David says he delights to show mercy. Not, oh, well, I've got to now. My son has died. I've got to show mercy. I don't want to. But my son has snookered me, really, by taking the punishment on himself at the cross. No, the father was there. It was the father who poured out his wrath on Christ. The father who placed our sins on Christ. Because he's a father who delights to show mercy. And the Old Testament says he not only forgives sin, but he remembers it no more. He removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. An immeasurable distance. They'll never be found again. He blots them out like a thick cloud. He puts them behind his back. He casts them into the depths of the sea. God is eager to forgive. And when he forgives, he speaks of it no more. And in the words of W.S. Plumer, I love this, no being in the universe is so slow to wrath so easy to be entreated, so rich in mercy as the God 
against whom we have sinned. What better news could anyone hear than that? Yet Yahweh, the only true and living God with whom we all have to do, is by very nature, is at heart a forgiving God. A God who forgives sin, and we're told in verse 7, a God who redeems us from sin. He forgives us the guilt. He redeems us then from its power and its penalty. And we're told it's abundant redemption in verse 7. In other words, there's no limit to it. No limit at all. It doesn't matter how many sins we've committed. No matter how many. It doesn't matter at all the nature of them. God can forgive them. God is prepared to forgive them. God can release you from the penalty and the power and ultimately the presence of them. God can. God is willing. God is able. God delights to pardon any sin, every sin, whoever you are, Whatever you've done, however long you've been doing it, the words of Psalm 130 verse 4 stand. With God there is forgiveness. For this, yes. For me, yes. For this much, yes. With God there is mercy. Sin may abound in your life, but it will never outdo the abundance of God's redemption. I think it was John Wesley who said that to God has more grace than I have sinned. Now, however much sin you've got, God has not just enough grace to cover it, more grace. God's grace can never be outdone. It's always top of the tree. And in verse 4, the psalmist rejoices in the knowledge God is willing to forgive. That's one thing, but there's more. Because in verses 5 and 6, he rejoices in the certainty that he himself will be forgiven. He believes that God is willing to do it. Now he believes, verses 5 and 6, and I will be forgiven. I believe God will forgive even me. Because he says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. And the Hebrew word wait there means to eagerly await something you know you will have. You haven't quite got it yet, but you know you're going to have it and you're looking forward to receiving it would be used of watchmen we've got that image of me in verse 6 my soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning and it would be used amongst other things for watchmen guarding sheep perhaps uh, or a city and they're looking for the new day and they know it's coming and they're looking forward to it it hasn't come yet but they know it will come and the picture we have in verse 5 and 6 is delightful is the psalmist looking up to God in full anticipation looking expectantly for just waiting to receive the forgiveness he knows God is going to provide and it is if the psalmist has his hands outstretched ready to receive it I need it I know I can only get it from you. I believe you are a forgiving God by nature, and I believe you are going to give it to me. What presumption, we might say. What presumption that this psalmist has the audacity to think that he can believe with all his heart that God is going to forgive him. How can he say that? What basis does he have for saying that? He tells us in verse 5, your word. God's word is the rock he stands on for this assurance of his forgiveness. 
I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. Hope there meaning trust. What he's saying is this, you have said something about this, and I believe it. You have made a declaration about this matter, and that's what I'm resting everything on. What's he resting on? What has God said in his word? That I am ready to forgive. That I delight to show mercy. That I forgive all who ask me for salvation in repentance and faith. That's what God has said. And the psalmist says, well, there we are then. If that's what you've said, and that's what I'm doing, then I'll have it. And he knows he can trust. He knows he can build his hopes upon. He knows he can rely fully on every promise God has made in his word. And we can too. Oh, I don't feel that God could forgive me. With the greatest of reverence, that's not even in the equation. I don't see how God could forgive me. Well, you're not necessarily asked to. God has said he will forgive you. If your spirit is that of the psalmist, acknowledging sin, acknowledging the consequences, acknowledging the seriousness, crying only to God, looking only for mercy, in repentance and faith, I guarantee it. Yes, I guarantee it. On the rock of God's word, you will be forgiven. So if that's where you are this morning, metaphorically speaking, put your hands out, ready to receive the forgiveness of God. Look for it, expect it, anticipate it, because it's coming. It's yours. It belongs to you by grace. Expect it. Lay hold of it. Verse 6. Wait for it. Look out for it. More than those who watch for the morning. Because they were certain the new day was coming. And it was more than likely the new day would come. But that wasn't absolutely guaranteed, was it? But for us, forgiveness is absolutely guaranteed. If we come the way of the psalmist. And then that leads me on as we come towards the end. On what basis will God do this? He believes that God is prepared to forgive. He believes that God, God is willing to pardon because he's promised that. But how can God do that? Because sins have been committed. His law has been broken. So what's going to happen then? Does the psalmist believe that God will simply turn a blind eye to the sins he's committed. That God will pretend they don't exist. He'll sweep them under the carpet. Oh, I love you so much. Let's not let this sin get in the way. Don't let sin spoil things. Let's forget about it, and I'll just take you as it is. No, God can't do that. Because he is love as much as, sorry, he is holiness as much as he is love. There's a perfect balance in God's nature. His holiness never gets the better of his love, and his love never gets the better of his holiness. It is perfectly balanced, a holy love. And so he cannot simply overlook it. He cannot simply brush it under the carpet because it will keep coming back. No, he forgives our sins by paying for them himself. We have that in verse 7 with this word, with him is abundant redemption, setting someone free through the payment of a price. And that's what the psalmist says you have with God. You have being set free through the payment of a price. And who paid that price? Well, 
Someone is spoken of in this psalm. He's not mentioned very, very clearly. It's a little bit sketchy here. But if you set this psalm in the context of the whole Bible, we have an indication of who is this one who will pay the ransom price for this psalmist? Who is going to redeem him, indeed all his people, verse 8, from all his iniquities? Look at verse 8. The psalmist speaks in verses 1 to 7 in the present tense. Verse 8 He speaks in the future tense in the Hebrew, he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. In other words, the psalmist is saying this redemption which he's looking for, this redemption he believes he will have is going to come through someone who is not yet there. It's going to come through someone that he's waiting for as a redeemer who will pay for these sins who will secure this redemption, but he's not here yet. He's yet to arrive. He's thinking of this messianic hope, isn't he? That leaps off almost every page in the Old Testament. There from Genesis 3.15, someone coming to destroy the works of the evil one. This redeemer, this deliverer, who's going to rescue God's people. Who is this? It's the Messiah God has promised to send. The psalmist is resting all his hopes in the salvation God has promised to provide through a Redeemer yet to come. And no doubt this psalmist would have been going up to Jerusalem, Passover, and offering sacrifices for his sin that were an anticipation of a great, final, full, complete sacrifice yet to come. And we live much later. And we live after the coming of the one he was looking to, to redeem Israel from all his iniquities. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth secured the redemption of this psalmist. And Jesus of Nazareth has secured the redemption of all God's people. Martin Luther called this a Pauline psalm. Not because Paul wrote it, but because it preaches so clearly and powerfully the truth that Paul would later become synonymous with. Because Paul didn't discover it. Paul drew it out of the Old Testament and embellished, or not embellished, was a bad word, um, expanded upon it with new light from the Spirit. It was always there. The truth of salvation by grace through faith in God. Faith in the Messiah, faith in the Redeemer. That's the message of this psalm. That was the psalmist's confidence. I wonder this morning, does it in any way resonate with you? Does this psalm in any way chime with you? Perhaps this morning you're still in verses 1 to 3. Perhaps you've recognized you're a sinner. Perhaps you recognize if you were to be called before God, there could be only one outcome, condemnation and damnation. You know that, but you don't know how to get out of that. If that's where you are tonight or this morning, don't despair. There is hope. The game is not up. Because the news is with God, with whom you have to do, there is forgiveness. And with the Lord, there is mercy. He can redeem you. It's not beyond him. He is willing to do it. But it's not automatic. You must join the psalmist. You must confess your sin. With no but, but confess it. 
mourn for it. Turn from it and cast yourselves fully and unreservedly upon God's mercy, putting your hope, your faith, your trust, your everything. Not in one who you're looking for, but one who has already come, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do that, you will be pardoned. Yes, you will be pardoned. He will be attentive to the voice of your supplications. One writer says, the throne of God is most high, yet he delights to hear the petitions of hearts that are most low. On the afternoon of the 24th of May, 1738, a 34-year-old Anglican clergyman by the name of John Wesley attended a service at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He had recently returned from two years' missionary service in Savannah, Georgia, but was in a state of great distress, bordering on depression. His time in America had been beset with difficulties, and he had come back to England a relative failure. And during that service at St. Paul's Cathedral, the choir sang a psalm, Psalm 130. And as he heard the words of this psalm being sung, Wesley's soul was stirred as he said to himself, that's me, that's where I am. The cry of that man's heart is my cry. And Wesley suddenly saw that he was in the depths and the reason he was there was because he was a sinner. He'd been an Anglican clergyman for 10 years, but he was still unconverted, separated from God, needing forgiveness. He needed a redeemer. And later that day, he attended a Moravian society meeting in Aldersgate Street in London. And as one of the members read from the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the Romans, explaining how God brings you out of the depths, how God redeems sinners, how God shows mercy, Wesley says, about a quarter before nine, I felt my heart, that heart that had been so low, that heart that had been drowning in the ocean, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for my salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That psalm kick-started John Wesley's conversion and Romans concluded it. I pray you follow the path of Wesley this morning and that this psalm will stir you and point you to where you need to go. I have a promise for you elsewhere in Scripture. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. You must do that. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he'll get back to you on it. He'll consider it he may very well be favorably disposed towards you. No, no. You return in repentance, and we have these wonderful words, he will have mercy on him. Turn to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Abundantly. I assure you, there is nothing you can bring before God that will overwhelm him. There's nothing you can present at the foot of the cross 
that God would say, oh dear, I don't know how to do with this. I've never had this before. He will abundantly pardon. I promise it. On the strength of God's word, hope in his word, trust in the Lord. And if you're a Christian, this is your testimony. You're in the heights today because God has lifted you from the depths through his son going from the heights to the depths to get you out. Praise be to his name.